Hi, this is Tamsin Granger. This is Dan Abuha. With Tamsin and Dan Read the Paper on Sunday, April 18th, 2021. Okay. I believe you. April 18th, huh? All yep. right. I'll take that. Um, yeah. So we had, you know, a uh, somewhat eventful week. Uh, we, uh, I mean, to me, I'm stumbling, yes. Uh, well, to me, the big thing The Mets is, won some games. The Mets won some games. That's what week. makes your week uh, I'll get an eventful to, week. I'll get back to the Mets in just a minute. So we saw, uh, or, or participated in, however one best describes it, the classic stage companies uh, benefit uh, gala, uh, which was uh, sort of focused around a video that was put together about the Sondheim show Assassins because uh, Classic Stage is going to be uh, producing Assassins when theaters reopen, hopefully in the fall. They were all set to put it on some time ago in the spring, but of course that was postponed by the pandemic. And um, it was, uh, I thought it was an event that that worked well. Um, So it was a Zoom call. Two things, two pieces. One, there was a Zoom call. Like a live watch party kind of thing. Live watch party, in which you got together with a group of friends and acquaintances who you recruited for this purpose. And you also uh, had the opportunity to have participate in your Zoom call to artists, in our case, a woman, uh, an actor named Elizabeth Davis, who was in Once, and an actor named George Abood, who was in the band's visit. And they spoke with us and our guests for 10, yeah. 15 Yeah, so there minutes. was this enormous group. Right, all right, go ahead. Enormous group. That's how it started out, yes. In a Zoom call. And then we were all divided up into Zoom chat room. rooms. Suites, yes. Chat rooms. Okay, chat rooms it is. Okay. And uh, each uh, each board member, yeah. of which you are one, yes, uh, had invited people to be in this sort of chat room, live watch party thing right. uh, in preparation for this uh, video. Video, but but the chat room itself was interesting. Uh, the actors uh, George and Elizabeth, you know, who were very articulate in talking about their experiences in the theater, in particular, uh, talking about going in each case from a very successful Broadway show to off Broadway to, to classic stage to do a production there. Because and why it's worth being from an actor's perspective, it was on you know, off Broadway, right? From an actor's perspective, notwithstanding. The money and, and the glory of being on a Broadway show, the artistic experience of participating in the off-Broadway show with classic stage uh, called to them, and they felt rewarded by that. And they for, therefore were underscoring the importance of classic stage company and other Broadway theaters, and I thought they were very persuasive. I thought they were very compelling in that connection. So it was interesting talking to them. And then we had uh, the video. I, I call it a video. There must be a better word for it than that. But it was a 50-minute uh, film. That was put together. John Doyle was the artistic director of Classic Stage, uh, spearheaded this. And it was a combination of uh, songs from Assassins and discussion about Assassins with the participation by uh, folks who had been in previous productions of Assassins and those lined up to be in the future production. Right? Three generations of Assassins performers. Classic Stage was supposed to put on a production. We we covered that. Of, yes, I spoke of assassins. To yes, I, I okay, got, we did that. So this uh, video or film was in celebration of assassins. Yeah, it kind of in place of being able to put on the live production. It was well, kind of a placeholder. Yeah, 
and uh, hopefully it, w- it was also a fundraising yeah, oh, uh, sure. effort yeah. um, to uh, try to help sustain right. off-Broadway when everything is off. Right. And the- uh, it was, uh, as you said, various people performing and also uh, various people expressing uh, their love of uh, Sondheim and classic stage, yeah, among yeah, other yeah. things, well, what, including yeah. Audra McDonald and her husband Will Swenson, yeah. uh, etc. Well, so, well, Will's in the new production of Assassins. Uh, yeah. Uh, so, what do you think of the film? I thought I thought it was fine. Yeah. Okay. It was. Uh, it's always fun to see the um, different performers. Yeah. Uh, from different uh, productions, and they're all brought together. Uh, and now they're at various ages. Yeah, they're stratified uh, by age. It right. was really uh, interesting how many of them could still sing. Yeah, they sang very well. The older ones sang very well. Uh, and so that was fun. And it was fun. They also, not only did they sing and were the, you know, their singing was put together uh, in um, a production, yeah. even though they were all apart. They were all different separately. Right, yeah. Okay, but we know how to do that by yeah. now yeah. with... Uh, this pandemic um, Zoom Zoom yeah. world, but um, so the the performances were really kind of fun, yeah, and uh, very uh, some of them quite poignant and uh, interesting. But also there were comments from the various performers what they remember yeah. about the performance, uh, about being in it, about working together with various people, uh, about their character, uh, etc. So uh, it was um, an insight into mm-hmm. assassins. I think it's better if you're familiar with the play. Yeah, uh, it's more meaningful. But even for me, I re- I have seen assassins. I remember very little of it, but uh, I still found it uh, quite uh, interesting. Yeah, no, I agree with all that. And uh, uh, yeah, you know, it's funny. I, I ran into. Uh, some sources about Sondheim, which I didn't know existed, uh, totally by accident, um, because I picked up, for some reason, an advertisement to a new book coming out called the Stephen Sondheim Encyclopedia, which was released uh, two days ago. So we're Ooh, all current. I smell Christmas presents. And uh, no, it costs like 100 bucks, more than that. Oh, A 600-page wow. volume about everything uh, Sondheim. And so I, I, I checked into it, and uh, I don't give a, have a great sense of it. It's put together, I shouldn't say put together, it's written entirely by a fellow named Rick Pender. And if you follow Rick Pender's story, uh, it starts this way. There was a, um, something called the Sondheim Review, which was a magazine, a quarterly that existed between 1994 and 2016. He began writing for the Sondheim Review at some point, became the editor and was the editor at its demise. Then he got involved in a website called, strangely enough, Everything Sondheim, which uh, sort of was put out the pasture, then brought back by the Signature Theater, and now he's got the Sondheim Encyclopedia. So I didn't realize that there were so pe- people, well, in this case, this one fellow, so obsessed with Sondheim and, yeah, Christmas present. So um, that was interesting to me. The... Uh, <laughs> The video. Well, what did you find out from the encyclopedia? Well, I, I didn't. I haven't gotten it yet. and I haven't read a review. I did see an interview, a podcast with uh, Pender, and uh, basically everything he talked about, I already knew. So it wasn't uh, too eye-opening uh, for me, but uh, whatever. 
Uh, I'm sure there's there's a lot of detail there, and uh, you know it might be interesting. Don't know. Really? It, <laughs> You're putting me through this long description, and you say, "Hey, you know, nothing that interesting." Well, you know, it's a, nothing I didn't already know. Well, I don't know. We think uh, there's an assumption. All right, right. Well, 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 you must have found out something interesting about Sondheim, or you wouldn't have brought him up. No, I, I can't think about it. Oh, I did find out one thing. Here's something, uh-huh. and I think I might have vaguely knew this. He, at one point early in his career. Uh, went out to California and was writing for sit- wrote for a sitcom for a year and wrote several episodes of a sitcom. This is in the fifties, yeah. Okay. And you'll never guess what sitcom it was. In the fifties, yeah. Um, uh, I, I don't. I have no idea. Topper. Oh, Topper. Yeah. Well, it's one of the greats. Yeah. So he was writing. To, if you remember your episodes of Topper, Topper was about a guy who was a widower, who was a slightly older man who was living in this large house uh, and it was occupied by ghosts. Yes. And it was based on a movie. A young, hip couple. A young, hip couple. I died, had they died in an automobile, automobile accident? accident. Yeah. 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 And so like uh, Topper juice. was an old, fuddy-duddy. I can tell you who it was. You remember. It was Leo G. Carroll. Right. But he, he was... Uh, an old English personality. Yeah. Apparently, so, it was even more loved in uh, Great Britain. Okay. So, uh, and, and what did Sondheim learn from that? Uh, Anything? Uh, no, well, I don't know what he learned, but he Rick, learned to come back to Rick the Penders, East and uh, focus on musicals. Rick Penders, I guess he did. Rick Penders took away from it. They didn't have the sophisticated Sondheim humor we've come to expect, but on the other hand, it's uh, still pretty funny. So you can look in the topper, and you can look into the uh, "Tell the Story" is the name of the video we've been talking about that you can probably access through the Classic Stage website. So you might want to look into that. Okay. Okay. Yep. Let's get back to art. <laughs> Really, that's the only interesting thing we did was watch that. Let's talk about art, Tim. We okay. can't talk about art too much. Um, all right. Uh, so, another good article by Russell Shorto yeah. in the New York Times Magazine section. Yeah. The woman who made Van Gogh. Neglected by art history for decades, Joe Van Gogh Bonger, the painter's sister-in-law, is finally being recognized as the force who opened the world's eyes to his genius. Now, we t- we've talked about Russell Shorto uh, fairly recently because he wrote a great, uh, really fun article about Rembrandt mm-hmm. in the New York Times Magazine a couple years ago. And he's also written books about, uh, um, what's his, uh, my, fa- my favorite book is Island at the Center of the World, story of... Uh, Manhattan and its relationship, how how the Dutch really invented America oh. um, by uh, uh, inventing Manhattan, and uh, he um, he makes a great uh, case mm. for the influence of what America is today by the Dutch. Okay, we often think in terms of uh, um, the English or whatever. Uh, and but uh, it's really the Dutch. Anyway, but don't get me started on that. That's a, a Van Gogh or, or that's Van Gogh. A fun Should we call it Van Gogh or Van Gogh? No, I don't. Well, we could say Van Gogh, but even that is not really. Uh, we've been to the Netherlands. That's yeah. not how they say it. No, no, it's uh, it's hard. Yeah. Uh, but so I'm going to say Van Gogh. Okay. Uh, just so people know who I'm talking about. Right. And um, and uh, anyway. So we love Van Gogh, right? Vincent Van Gogh. Who doesn't love Van Gogh? Uh, you and I have been to the Van Gogh Museum in uh, Amsterdam, right. right? And that was actually uh, a, 
I'll get to that in a minute, uh, how that, that comes about. That, that was built with the idea of 60,000 people uh, a day would uh, visit it. And actually, um, is it 60,000? 60,000 visitors a year. Yeah, okay, I'm okay. getting carried away here. Right. In 2019, before the pandemic, more than 2.1 million people jostled for a chance to see Van Gogh um, per year. Oh. In the museum, and when we went there, it was very, oh, it was very busy, yeah. and 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 it's a delight. Anyway, so here's the story: when you study Van Gogh, okay, one of the first things they tell you now is, well, the really interesting thing about Van Gogh are the letters, mm. the letters between him and his brother Theo, his younger brother Theo, who was businessman. Um, well, well, he was actually a gallery mm-hmm. uh, owner, and. Um, Sold art, okay. So, uh, it, but he wasn't able to sell much of Van Gogh's paintings. I always heard that Van Gogh only sold like one painting while he was right. alive. It might have been a, a couple more than that, right. but not much. No one got him, right. okay. But Theo did, all right. And it turns out, eventually, Theo's wife did too. He um, married Joe. And uh, brought her to Paris, and uh, um, they had 21 months together. And well, not even 20 months. 21 months into that, Van Gogh commits suicide or dies somehow. That's controversial. We've talked about that before. Some people think it wasn't a self-inflicted uh, gun wound, but anyway, um, he dies. Theo rushes to his side. He's there when he dies. And then a couple of months later, Theo dies. Okay, mm-hmm. uh, unrelated. Uh, of um, uh, later, he was in the later stages of uh, syphilis, actually. Mm-hmm. But meanwhile, he had married, and uh, they had a child. Mm-hmm. And um, the um, and whose name was Vincent. Mm-hmm. And uh, so uh, once. Um, Vincent dies and Theo dies. It's up to Joe to deal with the art. Mm-hmm. And uh, Theo has asked her on his deathbed, basically, to, uh, you know, uh, make sure the world knows Vincent. Mm-hmm. And uh, she takes that seriously. And she has no idea how to do this. She has nothing about the art world. Mm-hmm. She's entirely uncomfortable with this. But she goes to the letters, all right? She reads the letters and really finds the secret. And there were many, many letters between Vincent and his brother. Mm-hmm. And they had little sketches. They have descriptions of how he's feeling, what he's seeing, what he's painting. Um, so she finds um, Vincent through that, okay? And then uh, is able to find a way to promote his art and uh, create a sense of interest. Mm-hmm. Although it wasn't easy, okay? It still wasn't easy. People found his art extremely shocking and crude. And uh, she really unlocked his personal story with the art to find the meaning. And and um, people have been talking for years about the letters, but no one ever mentioned Joe. But there's a biography coming out uh, about her, or it's it's come out already in Dutch, 
but uh, it uh, it isn't uh, available in English yet. Um, so it's, uh, you know, people are just coming around to the idea that Joe was really responsible for marketing uh, Vincent's art and, you know, creating that notion of the sort of uh, tortured, uh, suffering artist. Hmm. It wasn't really uh, a popular notion uh, at the time. It wasn't about the artist, it was about the art. Hmm. And so it took a little bit of a leap to get people to um, be interested in uh, the personal side of the art, the personal revelations in this style of art. Um, and, it, and it changes, and we, we don't hesitate to do that now. And, uh, you know, Van Gogh as suffering artist is iconic. I mean, think of uh, the movie right. Lust for Life right. uh, with um, Kirk Douglas in it, right? I mean, that's based on the Irving Stone novel, um, which uh, comes out, well, it's all about the letters. Uh, Joe fights to get the letters published. She even, she promotes his art in Europe. She does a very good job at that. But America hasn't caught on. She goes to America, and they're still not catching on. Mm-hmm. Um, although the Met, does, you know, puts a few in, you know, uh, paintings in an exhibition, etc. But she fights to get the letters published in English. Okay, all the letters, not in a bridge version. And once she does that, the the ball is really rolling. Um, so it's it's an interesting story of uh, how you know. No one knew about Van Gogh during his life. No one liked his paintings. And uh, his sister-in-law really fought to uh, get an understanding there. She fought to find her own understanding of the art and then to sell it. She, you know, she basically puts on the first uh, big exhibition of his work in 1905 uh, with 484 works. Now, the Van Gogh family has all the art, had all the art. She sells a fair amount of it, mm-hmm. okay, but keeps the best. And uh, eventually will donate, will give uh, about um, over 200 works to uh, the um, Dutch government or whatever you yeah. want to call it, and uh, it goes into that museum. Anyway, it's a fun, interesting article, kind of uh, illuminates um, sort of the uh, art marketing world in the early 19th, or late 19th, early 20th century. Okay. Um, yeah. I think, uh, I was trying to remember who played Gauguin in the uh, in Lust for Life. I think it was Anthony Quinn. You wouldn't remember that, would you? I think so. No, but that's possible. Yeah. You know, she didn't have it easy. You know, no, it, no, was, a I man's, mean, it was a man's world well, selling art. Quite apart art from Art was a man's world <laughs> back <laughs> then. And she really, uh, and plus she was not, uh, she wasn't steeped or educated yeah, in the, art history. But I think there's a bigger point here than man's world. I mean, the, the fact is that nothing of his sold before. I mean, she's selling something that hadn't sold. I mean, whenever you're selling something that hadn't sold, you're establishing a market. So that's the challenge. It would have been a challenge for anybody. Uh, it doesn't make any difference whether it's man or woman. And uh, she obviously succeeded. And uh, if she succeeded... Yeah, it, would, it does if you have like uh, an entree into the world. Yeah, she, but, but she, she used the unique it. approach. And even and to the extent that she knows some artists, nobody's interested. 
Nobody gets it. But that's, you know, if I'm listening to you, what makes it work is to sell the life story. Yeah. I mean, and that, in my mind, is what puts it over. Not, It's not a matter of right. connections or anything else. And that else. was a new way to go. Okay. So that's she, that, to me, is the story. She had to I invent mean, that. Yeah. All right. Well, she had a good story to work with, that's for sure. Um, baseball. Let's get back to baseball. But don't, here, last point about Van Gogh. Yeah. Everybody loves Van Gogh. Yeah. So it's hard to really imagine how people well, are looking back then and not not loving it. We don't we don't just love it because of the story. Okay? Well, no, no, I don't. No, find I, no, I think you can. I think well, the, first of all, everything is a matter of taste, and tastes right. change. I think Van Gogh represented a significant departure. Whenever something represents a significant departure from what one's accustomed to seeing, there's going to be a certain level of acceptance. In that case, you know, the world wasn't crying out to see things that way. But millions uh, of people love. Well, now but Van it's, Gogh. it's a whole different world. And I, I really think they, you know, I really suspect the majority of them don't know that much of the story. No, but I, but I think people see things a little bit differently. Their 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 expectations are less clear in terms of what whether it's going to see depicted or not and what kind of how realistic the thing's going to be and now it just seems awfully accessible because it's vibrant colors right. uh, great contrasts and it, it's Texture, sort of right, and it jumps off the page but um if any again it's just a more a substantial departure from what people have been used to seeing when they were seeing art, thinking but, about art. and one of the interesting things is also that uh, they were looking for uh, you know uh, art critics, art lovers, they're, they're looking for a sophisticated uh, form of art. And it's a sophisticated, cultured clientele. And uh, Van Gogh, Vincent always insisted he would be delighted if the working man yeah. okay. put his paintings it's, it's on his There's only one problem wall. with it. The only pro- yeah, the working man's not going to buy the paintings. You're not going to sell paintings to the working man. That's the problem, right? So if you're going to measure success by his yeah, no, the sale of his it, paintings, you know, then uh, you're not I don't think do he really. would. I think he would have been delighted to sell anything at yeah. any price. Uh, yeah, but we wouldn't be talking. It wasn't about like uh, people were, you know, offering him five francs for something. He said, "No, I'm going to hold out for five thousand francs." Well, no, well, no. but uh, anyway, go yeah. ahead, talk about your baseball or whatever. Really? Hmm. Well, since you want to talk about baseball. So we watched the baseball game the other day, you and I. You were there. You were awake. And uh, the Mets uh, prevailed, as they often do, against the Colorado baseball team, the Rockies. And what was remarkable about that game, as I pointed out to you, at one point, Jacob DeGrom had struck out nine batters in a row. And the major league record is 10. He didn't quite get that. But uh, nine is a lot. And a matter he's, of fact... He's so amazing. He is amazing. He's and he, he's batting like 600 or yeah, something, He's hitting right? also, you're right. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, but the, the interesting thing about the game was, even after he left the game, uh, Edwin Diaz comes in as a relief pitcher, and he strikes out the three batters he sees. So the Rockies, in what's well, a seven-inning game, it's a whole other story, but that's the way it is. So people are striking out people like crazy. Yeah. There are 17 Rockies. For the, for, there are 21 outs in a seven-inning game. 17 of them. 17 of 21 were strikeouts. That percentage was the highest percentage of strikeouts to total outs for one team in a game since 1900, all right? Everybody is striking out. And some people really don't 
like it. They think it's right. killing the game. You're going to, yeah, it's not fun to watch. It's only out. fun if it's, it's your fun, pitcher striking yeah, them out. All right. But so, nobody else can watch that. But it's more fun to watch people hit. Hit and running and catching and all that kind of stuff. And sliding. Oh, yeah. It's very exciting. Don't get me carried away. But the fact of the matter is that uh, there was a similar issue that arose years before in baseball. And they have a quote in the Times uh, about this very subject. Uh, in which uh, a newspaper writer, uh, Francis Richter of The Sporting Life, wrote, The restoration of the proper equilibrium between the two great principles of the game, attack and defense, or, is critical. And uh, too many strikeouts. When did he write that? I think he wrote that in 1892. And uh, so what they did was they changed things. They changed things in the game. They changed the measurements. Uh, of things and uh, so they didn't want too many strikeouts then they were dealing with five strikeouts a game which they thought was too much so now we're dealing with 17 of 21 and their proposal is to make the pitcher throw from a longer distance to the hitter it's 60 feet 6 inches and people are saying how about 61 feet 6 inches how about moving it back a foot and uh, they're so serious about this that there is a minor league called the Atlantic League that uh, has had its Fields altered to experiment with this to see how that goes to give the batters a better chance. Um, well, maybe they will. I mean, uh, there are a lot of people who, who really are behind this. I think this change may actually be made. Um, I can think of a lot of other things that they could do to uh, get more hitting into the game. I'm sure you've been thinking about the same thing. Uh, one is they could have a penalty for strike. That's the amazing thing about this: is the Mets struck out 17 of 21. They almost lost the game. You know, mm-hmm. strikeout is still an out, and a team like Colorado is not penalized for striking out left and right. And maybe you could penalize a team in some way for that. Another what, thing. What do you mean? What, penalize? What do you mean? I don't know. You could say that uh, you only get uh, two strikeouts an inning. You can get instead of three outs, you might if you strike out twice, the inning's over. You could have a rule that says that if a player strikes out three times in a game, he's disqualified from the game. I mean, okay. they do those kind of things in other sports. Um, you could have a, a designated hitter system different from what they ha- have now in which uh, people don't like the designated hitter because it just brings in these guys who can't play the field, but you could set it up so that they do play the field. I could go into detail, but uh, I sense that that's not necessarily a thing to do. But my latest idea is to also eliminate double play so that teams that put the ball in play are not penalized. Now, you know, it's worse to hit a ground ball than it is to strike out because the ground ball might result in a double play. So I'll give this some more thought, and I'll get back to you, because I know you're concerned about this. But you might see a longer distance from the pitching rubber to the plate next year. Yeah, and we're still working on the rules where the fans can catch the uh, foul balls. balls. That's a real good idea. Thanks for remembering that. Yes. A lot of people are talking that up. Even though it's baseball, sometimes I listen. Yeah. Um, Okay, so I know I've overstayed my welcome in the art world, but uh, just a... Um, quick mention of an article uh, about the uh, Leonardo painting, Leonardo da Vinci, yeah, I read right? That article, yeah. Okay, and uh, the um, Salvatore Mundi, which was allegedly bought by a Saudi prince uh, for four hundred and fifty million dollars. That's the name of the painting. Okay. Salvatore so, Mundi, right? Yeah, savior oh. of the world. Okay. Okay. And uh, it was it was it was a painting that um, you know was discovered a few years ago, and you know it had been 
covered up and retouched and right. uh, you know people decided indeed it was a um, possibly a uh, Leonardo's somebody bought it for ten thousand dollars and then it ends up selling for 450 million <laughs> anyway it was anyway um, yes. moving right along big show at the Louvre right the 500th anniversary show of Leonardo at the Louvre and they wanted to have that uh, painting in the show and of course the Saudi cultural ministry wants to have it in there too it's you know um, great cachet to be in a big uh, exhibition like that everybody's happy because the painting is going to be in the show uh, the French allegedly do some examination of it uh, and um, with uh, fluorescent x-ray infrared scans digital cameras and they allegedly ascertain that it is indeed a Leonardo okay which I guess makes it worth the 450 million. Okay, but uh, they're not really saying that they actually did all that because the um, the Saudi cultural culture ministry ended up refusing to let the um, painting be in the show because they wanted it to be next to the Mona Lisa, mm-hmm. and the French wouldn't go for it. They said it's just impossible. You know, from a security viewpoint, blah, 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 whatever. Uh, they were not going to let uh, it uh, infringe on, you know, the star, Mona, Lisa. Um, so it wasn't in the show. So um, I guess uh, in a fit of pique, the French wouldn't uh, publish their findings on the authenticity of the Salvatore Mundi. They say, well, we don't, if the, if it's not in the show, we can't really comment. Okay, we're not going to make anything public. But the Times and other people have gotten copies of this report and have given out the information. Anyway, big fight uh, and, uh, you know, kind of fun that uh, these uh, big times art people are uh, squabbling over somebody, this. Did somebody deny that the reason that it was withheld was because... Uh, they wanted it next to the Mona Lisa. I thought there was some debate about whether that was the reason. Um, that's what I seem to remember. I mean, look, you're probably yeah. right that that's the reason, but I don't think they've really owned up to that. I think they, they, they're saying, well, you know, there's all kinds of complications. Okay, maybe. But uh, you're probably right. I'm, I'm, I'm probably right. Oh, that's just what the article says. I'm, no, I, I, yeah, I think, I, well, yes, but I think, I think there's some. There was a lot of negotiations that went on, yeah. you know, between various it's ministers. Not, it's not exactly transparent. Right up until the, the end. Right. And they just, I mean, they, they were basically printing the catalogs right. and tore stuff out. The Salvador Monday was supposed to be on the front. Okay. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's and, right. It was supposed to be on the cover. But, and, you know, nobody, it's one of those situations where nobody is really... No one's talking. Um, no one's talking. ...wants to go public right. about the exact reasoning. Yeah. yeah. All right, well, that's... But if you know better, if you have connections... <laughs> I happen to know a few people in the art world. Uh, so, in any event. Uh, so, we talked last week about, um, you know, what happens to the basketball floor, that there is, there is a market in buying basketball floors. That's right. The floor on which they play basketball games can be transported and bought and sold. And we talked last week about the winner of the NCAA tournament buying the floor uh, that was used in the uh, when they won the tournament. Well, apparently this is a thing because uh, Canada uh, has now uh, bought the floor 
that was used by the Toronto Raptors in the NBA when they won the championship a couple of years ago. So why would Canada buy the floor, you're asking? And the reason is that um, Canada is hosting the tournament uh, that's being used to determine which countries are eligible in the upcoming Olympics basketball competition that will be in Western Canada. And in order to enhance Canada's chances, or as they put it, good luck, uh, they are buying the floor and bringing it to Western Canada so that the Canadian team will be competing on the Toronto Raptors floor. How's that? I think uh, it's just marketing. Okay. I don't think it's anything about luck at all. $250,000 they, they paid. Yeah, but it, they they have a half-page coverage in the New York Times yeah. from this. Otherwise, who on earth would know that this is going on in Western Canada? Apparently, there's a, there's a hockey thing. You know, you're a hockey person. Just tell me if you're familiar with this. Uh, which is a little less elaborate. People buy the ice? No, they stick a coin under the ice I for know. good luck. Okay. Yeah. You well, that would be that. a little cheaper than it buying a $250,000 floor. <laughs> okay. It's called a lucky loony. Okay. Uh, yeah. All right. But that's a different sport. Okay. You're probably right. It's probably publicity. Probably? They're <laughs> <laughs> Canadians. They're not, they're not idiots. They're I, Canadians. I, I was taken in. <laughs> I was taken in by this. I'm okay. being used by the Canadian authorities. Go ahead. Wall Street Journal... Uh, has an article about a a new uh, well it's not really a biography but uh, it's a book about Agatha Christie's Poirot. It, it's like the uh, Sondheim Encyclopedia. It's the same idea except it's about Christie by Mark Aldridge. Okay. So if you like Agatha Christie, yeah. um, you might want to you know I smell look f- into this book. I smell Christmas present. No, <laughs> not a fan. <laughs> Not a fan. Yeah. I like a lot of things about Agatha Christie, her yeah. life, especially the the idea. Um, a lot of the, a lot of things are interesting about Agatha Christie, and I like a lot of the Hercule Poirot uh, shows and movies, etc. I, like, I like the way you but say I've, that. Yeah. But I've never really liked the books. The books I find boring. Really? Yeah. She sold a lot of books. Yeah, I know she did. I know she did. I, I total respect. But uh, not my favorite. What can I say? Uh, but anyway, uh, so it'd be fun to um, if you if you like him, uh, it'd be fun to read about. It's uh, Aldridge is a um, lecturer at a university in England on film and television. Yeah. So I think he has kind of a you know sort of a um, pop culture uh, interest in the character, and it'd be fun to read about him from that perspective. Uh, there's a great line here. Um, describing Poirot and of course his first name Hercule, Hercule. is really Hercules yes, right it's Hercules yes. yeah. and but of course he is no Hercules he's, he's, by a long he's shot a midget. he's five yeah, foot he's four inches tall five, you know I'm five foot four well you know? I, it's not I'm, you know. but that's not your nickname Hercule. Um, but uh, anyway so uh, that would be fun which made me think of the books I have just been reading of course you know I'm a fan of uh, the um, Montalbano. Inspector Montalbano. Yes. And those are uh, books... Um, I'm waiting for that article. Um, journal. Well, yeah, yeah they, it never will be. Those are books by Andrea Camilleri and uh, about a Sicilian yeah. um, policeman 
And uh, as I've said before, they're racy. Um, there's a lot of great food talked about. Um, and there's a lot of a fair think, amounts of... I think uh, you, the way you describe it, there's salty language. Is the way and there's it. salty language. <laughs> These people in Sicily, I think they really, um, they have a very, they're very comfortable insulting uh, their best friends with rather, um, I don't know, uh, picturesque, yeah. shall we say, uh descriptions and nicknames um, so it's it's rather racy it's not family friendly but uh, while I'm reading one of the Montabano books Montabano mentions that he's reading a series about a Swedish mm-hmm. inspector yeah. Martin Beck yeah um, that he really um, approves of in many ways now because Montabano is an interesting uh, guy uh, he's not just salty, he's interesting. I thought, okay, I should look into Martin Beck. Yeah. And so I did. And yeah. it's a series of Swedish, um, you know, crime novels uh, written by a husband and wife team. Okay. Madge Hoval and Per Walu during the 60s and 70s. Mm-hmm. Okay. My apologies to anybody who knows how to speak Swedish. It's actually like one giant book. Yeah. Story of a crime broken down into, you know, 10 little, 10 novels. Mm-hmm. And it's really, really good. And it's interesting. And it's much, it's rather thoughtful. Uh, the characters are often flawed, but, uh, you know, um, have their redeeming qualities. Um, Beck himself is, you know, he starts out, he's, he has a bad stomach. He has a bad marriage, um, and yet he is, you know, always working his way through these incredible, mm-hmm. mysterious homicides. And uh, so, I mean, there've been a fair amount of shows and movies, mm-hmm. but glancing at uh, the way they're cast, etc., and the the way the plots were changed, I don't think I would be that fascinated by any of them. But I do recommend the Martin Beck uh, crime series. Okay. Written by... I, don't Just look up Martin Beck. <laughs> um, it's Madge Hoval. Is okay. S-J-O-W-A-L-L and Per Walu. W-A-H-L-O. Oh, okay. And, well, um, listen, as long as we're in the international mode, I'll just mention briefly there was an article. But, but, but you what? read that stuff. Yeah. And uh, you see why I can't really get into right. um, Agatha Christie by comparison. Yes. With the, and, and of course, Poirot is Belgian. They go to great pains to point that out. Yes. Uh, he hates it when people, when people call, call him French. French. It's the worst thing that could happen. So, uh, speaking of uh, France and the Tour de France, there's an article in the Times about. Called Ryder. May I just say, what? That this is the last time. What? Okay. <laughs> they what? say they they yeah. say that uh, the Martin Beck uh, stories really invent the uh, police procedural uh-huh. drama as we know it today. Oh, good. Okay. Good. I I, I believe you entirely. Okay. Uh huh. Riders and fans adjust to new ban on bottle tossing. So I don't watch a lot of uh, Tour de France type stuff. I know your mother does, but she's not on the podcast with us today. And apparently it's become a standard thing that as these riders uh, snake through these very crowded venues and their fans lining the 
the curbs to greet and shout encouragement to the riders. Uh, they toss water bottles, empty water bottles to the fans, which are great souvenirs, just like catching a foul ball in baseball or something. And um, that's now uh, against the rules. You're no longer allowed to do that. And that's caused an upset. And the reason is that uh, it's littering. So the general concept of throwing uh, empty water bottles or empty wrappers from food or whatever when they take nourishment while they're riding on the side uh, of the path has really gotten to people. And they say, you know, it's a very bad thing. There are a lot of riders. and Gotten to people. Gotten to officials. I don't know. Look, I, it's not my rule. It's you know, kind of a crazy rule. I smell rule. a rat here. It it, just, it doesn't, apparently it, hundreds of water bottles are tossed to the side every Right, race. but if people collect them, uh, well, you know. That's what, now you're taking the, the side of the riders. The lips of some famous rider has yeah. touched this bottle. So here's the funny thing. It must thing. have tremendous value. So they, but they know they have to get rid of the bottle. So they designate certain spaces or certain areas where they can toss the bottles, where it would be received by someone These who's in charge. These poor guys. It's hard enough riding the damn race. Well, now they got to watch out well, for here's the, the funniest bottle thing. to bottle And here's area. the quote from one of the riders. He says, none of us played ball sports. So you have a bunch of skinny cyclists trying to wing a half-full bottle over a bunch of riders. It could be pretty dangerous. Yes. They can't throw and catch. So it's really a bad idea. So in any event. I think it does sound like a bad idea. Yes, it does. They could just go through afterwards and pick up the darn bottles. Well, it's uh, apparently... How hard is that? What can I say? Kokumi. Yes. The next taste sensation. Now, we've talked before about umami. Yeah. And the amino acids that, you know, there's this... They've proved that there is this other taste, umami. Um, and they can identify the amino acids that create it. Uh, so good. It only took about a hundred years, uh, for Americans to come around to that. The Japanese, of course, uh, discovered it. And now there's talk of another, uh, taste sensation, koku, kokumi. You had the me on the end refers to taste and it works by coating the mouth and becoming more intense and extended in time. I don't even know what that means. It's supposed to give us kind of a rich fat taste. Mm -hmm. You know, fats just don't, are not just there to make you fat. They it's actually enhance, change flavor. I think it's called mouthfeel. It's, it's a mouthfeel, yes. It changes mouthfeel. Yeah, that's the phrase when you're looking asked for. Yeah. what foods have koku, yeah. Japanese food experts yeah, list wild boar, right. adult wasps, duck eggs, and aged sake, as well as long simmered and fermented dishes. Okay. Okay. So you can understand some of that because think of bolognese. Bolognese is the result of long simmering, mm -hmm. okay, a great bolognese, mm -hmm. and the entire flavor of that sauce changes over the hours mm -hmm. that it simmers, mm -hmm. all right? Um, they also mention here garlic is yeah. involved, okay? Mm -hmm. And that uh, in 1990s, uh, there was research done adding diluted garlic to di two different soups. The garlic, again, People didn't say, oh, now the soup tastes like garlic is in it. They said, hmm, this has, uh, you know, uh, this uh, mouthfeel, sensation, richness to it instead. And so they isolated some of the amino acids 
responsible for this, including, here we go, glutathione. Okay, so glutathione is uh, making these things taste rich. Now, this is interesting because mm-hmm. yeah. we like things that taste rich, mm-hmm. but we don't like it if they are making us fat. Right. Okay, so if you can get this more sort of fabulous taste sensation without more calories. So how do you get it? That would be kind of super duper. Well, they're not quite sure yet. Okay. All right. But that's why they're researching it. Now, here's another interesting thing. Yeah. The flavor is found where? In long simmered foods. Okay. And fermented foods. Hmm. Humans prefer cooked foods. Humans prefer fermented foods. Maybe that's kind of an evolutionary thing. Right? Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Because raw food that has, can have all kinds of, uh, you know, um, rotten, you know, evil pathogens in it, mm-hmm. you know, so it, there's something in our makeup that has us prefer the cooked and fermented items that may be actually um, safer for us to eat. Mm-hmm. So that makes it kind of fascinating as well. Anyway, um, we'll see what happens with this. When they figured out umami and isolated that, mm-hmm. uh, the um, guy who did it uh, ended up, um, Ikeda, actually inventing MSG mm-hmm. and made a good bundle off of that. Yeah. Okay, so who knows where Kokumi will go and we're going to find out more we you know we're just at the beginning of understanding okay our sense of taste all right um yeah i'm just looking you know i just wonder when you're looking at a restaurant menu when you'll be able to isolate it or something like that but um no but it just it it explains a lot Mm -hmm. because we do tend to Love these long simmering things. You know, mm-hmm. think of, you know, there, there are great chicken soups that, you know, simmer forever, mm-hmm. uh, etc. And that's because magic is happening with the glutathione or whatever it oh. is um, during that process. All right. So the only, uh, there was an article in the Times which was kind of confusing because it was written by Wesley Morris. So it's always a little confusing. And it was uh, about the movies. Uh, but one thing it pointed out that I mentioned to you, I mean, we're coming up in the Oscars and all you read about is that the Oscars this year are of lesser interest. They expect a lesser viewership. I don't even read the articles. Yeah. And that uh, nobody's excited about the movies and no. people haven't been out to the movies, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, I credit all that. I mean, and it also it's quite clear who's going to win the Oscars. So I'm not going to go over that because I think everybody knows them. The only interesting thing... Maybe there's some competition for Best Picture, but I think it's pretty clear Nomadland is going to win for Best Picture, although... Really? What happened to your buddy Mank? Well, I like Mank, but uh, I like Nomadland, too. And, uh, you know, from a political perspective, I think Nomadland's an easier sell. But in any event, uh, but Wesley Morris points something out, which I had heard, which I wasn't quite clear on. And I pointed the article to you because I wanted to make sure I was reading it right. One of the reasons that there's less discussion and maybe less engagement... Uh, and frankly, less argument about what's worthwhile and, and, and what kind of movies are, are worth our interest is because you don't see box office figures. I mean, who's watching these movies? Do we know that anybody's seeing No One Land? Do we know if anyone's seeing Mank? If they are, they're seeing it on Netflix or something like that. And what's interesting to me is 
there aren't statistics as to how many people are watching movies on Netflix. It's not just that they're seeing it in a small screen, but we don't know whether, uh, you know, Mank or, or Nomadland have been seen by uh, millions of people or a handful of people. There's just no way of knowing. Well, the companies right. know, well, but, no but they, don't, they don't, they don't uh, tell publish. Right. They're, so that's kind of weird. I yeah. mean, that's kind of weird. So you usually at this time have something saying, well, this is a movie that's gained momentum and now their grosses are up to X or, or this is a movie that popular among critics, but it's only seen by a rarefied few. There's none of that discussion because mm -hmm. nobody knows. Right. Uh, so and if the and frankly, the end of end game of the whole thing in the Oscars talk about publicity is to boost those kind of sales and viewership. And we won't know about that either. So the whole exercise loses, you know, a lot of its uh, reason for being, you might say. All right. So it's kind of weird. Kind of weird. You read that article the same way I did, I assume. Yeah. Yeah. All right. And uh, finally, just quickly, you know, we always like to give a shout out to Dan Neal, who writes the, uh, the uh, core column called Rumble Seat for the Wall Street Journal, just because I love the way he writes. Uh, not because I'm interested in buying the article, uh, the car he's writing about this week, which is the Bugatti uh, Chiron. Uh, the Bugatti Chiron is a car which is looks like a you know a racing car basically, but mm -hmm. I guess it's a sports car you can buy as long as you're willing to pay 3.6 million dollars. Uh, that's right, 3.6 million dollars for the car, and. And he describes a lot of things about it, including its ability to gain speed very quickly, but also its ability, what he calls it's the car's amazing agility, which he describes this way. Shod with four of the meatiest, mightiest, most adhesive treaded tires I've ever seen on any car, road, or race, the Chiron's grip on earth is like Antaeus's sandals soaked in drag strip compound. The nominal figure is 1.6 G lateral acceleration, almost twice the force of gravity in side loading. I bet it's more. Between the heroic rubber and two and a half degrees of increased negative camber, the Chiron responds to decisive steering inputs hard enough to move loose chains from one pocket to the other. Get that, Tamsin? From one pocket <laughs> to the other. Are you familiar with Antias? I'm sure you are. Yes. Okay. But I'm... What? Not prepared to give a dissertation. Well, I'll just right tell you, Antius was the, the figure who was a fantastic, uh, well, is a mythological god. He was tremendously strong, but he got his strength from the earth. He was only defeated by Hercules because Hercules managed to lift him in the air. Well, that much I know, but. And, but Antius. I thought you were going to give it. No, no, no. How about camber? You know what camber is? Negative no. camber? No. Negative camber is when the tires are sort of tilted so that uh, the top of the tire is closer to the center of the car. And the bottom of the tire is uh, farther away from the car. All right. Anyway, always love to hear from Dan Neal. That's all we have this week on Tamsin. Dan, read the paper. This is Dan Abuhoff. And Tamsin Granger. We'll see you again next week.